Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro, and I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Cato, to a forum we'd actually been planning for a few months. Now, normally in the think tank world, when there's an event uh, in the real world that makes the subject of your policy discussion more current, that's a good thing. Under the present circumstances, however, and with all due apologies to the author, I really wish this book weren't quite so timely. Indeed, in the aftermath of the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, firearm regulation has understandably moved to the forefront of the national political debate. Even before Newtown, the shootings in Arizona and Colorado and the botched Operation Fast and Furious have put this issue to the fore. But many are now saying that this horrific event, its nature and how it stunned our nation, pushes the issue to a tipping point. Of course, the Second Amendment has long been one of the most divisive issues in American society. While there have been few national uh, legal developments since the Supreme Court's rulings in District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago, which decided that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to keep and bear arms, uh, in the home at least, and Alan would get into uh, a bit of that, I'm sure, uh, and trumped state laws to the contrary, states have been adjusting their laws uh, and public facilities changing their securities practice ever since Columbine in 1999. For example, Colorado passed a series of laws that should serve as a uh, national model. Some of them might be called gun control, some of them more in the gun rights category. Um, uh, but there is a, a broad consensus uh, uh, that's arisen, at least uh, there, that there are certainly things uh, that can be done uh, that, that get away from some of the um, sound bites and echo chambers that are typical of the policy debate at the national level. And litigation continues in state and lower federal courts. Just last month, the Chicago-based US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit struck down Illinois' blanket ban on carrying ready-to-use firearms. That opinion, written by Judge Richard Posner, made clear that the right to self-defense entails more than just allowing people to keep guns in the home. But nationally, uh, polarized, entrenched positions fail to constructively grapple with the fundamental policy question. How do we keep guns away from violent criminals? Should we focus on mental illness, background checks, assault weapons, something else? While America has a tradition of gun ownership, what can be done about the conflict between an individual's right to gun ownership for self-defense and the public's desire to be safe from gun violence? In Living with Guns, former New York Times reporter and editor Craig Whitney reexamines the right to bear arms, why it was enshrined in the Bill of Rights, and how it came to be misunderstood. Whitney proposes pragmatic solutions to control gun violence rather than guns, and ideas to keep them out of the hands of the people whom everyone agrees shouldn't have them. Commenting on this timely new book will be Alan Gura and Alan Morrison. I kind of feel like that Newhart episode. Here's my panelist, Alan. Here's my other panelist, Alan. Uh, who are on opposite sides of the Heller case. I'll introduce each of the panelists right before they speak. So first is the author, Craig Whitney, who spent his entire professional career at the New York Times, where he was assistant managing editor when he retired in 2009. He's actually had a pretty interesting life that reads like something out of a John le Carre novel, so bear with me. Normally you have to make things up to make these introductions interesting, but not today. Uh, Whitney started at the Times after graduating Harvard in 1965 as an assistant to James Reston. He then joined the Navy, working for the Secretary of the Navy and then the 7th Fleet in Vietnam. After a brief stint in New York, Whitney returned to Saigon and served as bureau chief there. 
Later, he reported from Bonn, Moscow, London, Berlin, and Paris, and has had more than 3,200 bylined articles in the Times. As Moscow bureau chief in the late 70s, Whitney was tried in a Soviet court on charges of slandering the Soviet state radio and television committee, I think that's a feather in your cap, uh, in a news report about a dissident who later became president of Georgia. Uh, Whitney and a colleague from the Baltimore Sun were convicted in absentia but allowed to finish their assignments and found the notoriety made it easier for them to do their uh, reporting with ordinary Russians. Uh, Whitney is the author of Spy Trader, a biography about East German lawyer and Cold War go-between Wolfgang Vogel. He also edited the WMD Mirage, a collection of documents about Iraq's history of weapons of mass destructions and the Bush administration's decision to go to war. He's also a talented amateur pianist and organist and wrote a book about pipe organs in America. His latest book is, of course, Living with Guns, A Liberal's Case for the Second Amendment. Please put your hands together for Craig Whitney. Thank you very much, Ilya. It's a, an honor to be here and to speak to all of you and be with these distinguished panelists. <clears throat> The appalling mass murder of those 20 small children and six adults at Sandy Hook on December 14 uh, makes clear that the decades-long stalemate that we've had that has prevented gun owners and gun control advocates from even discussing possible ways that might prevent such tragedies, or at least making them less frequent, that this long stalemate has to end. The Second Amendment does protect the historical right of individual Americans to have and use firearms. What it does not do is forbid regulation of those firearms, reasonable regulation. The right the Second Amendment recognizes is not an absolute right, as the NRA and other gun rights extremists would have us believe, but a common law right, I believe, that existed in the colonies before independence a right that was connected with civic duty and that coexisted in the co colonial era with gun registration and gun control. Now, after Newtown, more than ever, gun owners should recognize that they have a responsibility to contribute to constructive discussions about how to find realistic solutions to the real problem of gun violence in our country and not to distort all attempts to control increasingly deadly weapons that the Founding Fathers could never have imagined. It is no service to gun owners to make them believe that any regulation is just the first step to seizing all guns. Gabrielle Giffords and Mark Kelly, two years after she was shot in uh, one of those gun massacres in Tucson, have started something called Americans for Responsible Solution. And they wrote in uh, USA Today yesterday, announcing it, and I quote, we don't want to take away your guns any more than we want to give up the two guns we have locked away in a safe at home. They say they want to launch with this organization a national conversation about uh, gun violence and how to prevent it. Uh, Congressman Mike Thompson, the head of the Democratic uh, Congressional Task Force uh, on this subject, is also a gun owner and a Vietnam veteran, uh, who's also talking, he says, to all kinds of groups uh, in, in trying to determine uh, how to go forward from here. And he said on uh, television today, I think it was CNN, that uh, he agrees that 
he agrees, as, as you have to agree, that uh, people have, individual Americans have a right to firearms, and that that is not going to be questioned. Now more than ever, I think, Americans who advocate strict gun control have to make it clear that they accept the right to keep and bear arms as an individual right. Effective regulation in a country with 300 million guns in private hands is not a simple problem. And I don't think there are any simple or simplistic solutions. Eliminating the so-called assault rifles, like the AR-15 that, that killed those uh, people in Newtown, would not do much to reduce street gun violence, which is mostly committed with illegal and unregistered handguns. And that uh, street violence routinely takes somewhere between 13,000 and 15,000 lives a year. Making AR-15s illegal would not prevent people who do not respect the law from using them illegally to commit crimes. And worrying only about hardware, guns, without also addressing the social and psychopathological problems that have so often driven the killers in places like Newtown, Columbine, Tucson, Aurora, you keep naming them, will not bring mass shootings to an end. And I think it is past time, and I'm glad to see them doing it, for our political leaders to reach across the ideological divide and try to find measures they can agree on to try to prevent so many mass shootings and so much street crime. Otherwise, it's always going to be just a matter of time until the next one. And I took those words from my book, which came out a month before Newtown. As President Obama said when he announced the Biden Commission on December 19th, we're going to need to make access to mental health at least as easy as access to a gun. We're going to need to look more closely at a culture that all too often glorifies guns and violence. And any actions we take, we must take, must begin inside the home and inside our hearts. But the fact that this problem is complex can no longer be an excuse for doing nothing. And I think we've been doing nothing because of profound misunderstandings, some of them fostered deliberately, of what the Second Amendment is and why it was written. For most of the last three decades of the 20th century, as you heard, I was a foreign correspondent. And often I would be asked in one or another country where I was after one of our mass shooting atrocities why such things kept happening and why we Americans needed so many guns anyway. And I would you know, attempt to give an answer, but I realized I didn't really know myself and I began to think about the idea of doing research into the history of the Second Amendment when I had time. And the result after I retired three years ago turned into this book. And I found doing the research things that surprised me, maybe they shouldn't have surprised me, but you know, you learn a lot of things when you're in school and then you forget them. Uh, one was that the colonists had always had the right to keep and bear arms right from the start in Jamestown for hunting, for self-defense, and of course, importantly, for defense against attacks by Native Americans, who uh, soon found that these visitors were intending to stay a long time and take away their lands. That right was connected with the duty to serve in militia, to come to the common defense, in other words, not just for self-defense. You didn't have to be a militia member to have a gun, but if you had a gun, you had to be ready to serve in the militia. And they regulated 
the weapons. Uh, many militias in New England and elsewhere, uh, of course, the uh, local authorities who ran them had lists of names. And of the guns that the uh, people who had the guns had, they needed to know that in order to know, you know what kind of a militia force could they bring to bear at any point when Indians attacked, or uh, the British did, or the French, or who, whoever happened to be uh, causing a need for, for community defense. And the facility and, and, and the uh, familiarity that Americans had with firearms uh, won us the Revolutionary War, I think. We wouldn't have a United States of America if it hadn't been for Americans' familiarity and facility with firearms. But the right that we have always had has always been subject to regulation. <clears throat> and after uh, independence, it continued to be. Uh, it came as a surprise to me to find that Western towns in 19th century, like Dodge City, required visitors to leave their guns at the edge of town or with the sheriff. Uh, the carrying of firearms strictly prohibited a hand-lettered sign in the main street of Dodge City proclaimed. You can see it in a photograph in Adam Winkler's fine book, uh, Gunfight. Concealed carry was banned in Louisiana, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, Virginia, and Alabama in the early 19th century. Concealed carrying was seen as cowardly. Real men didn't conceal their weapons. They wore them openly. How times have changed. <coughs> the laws, of course, also changed, have also changed uh, since then. We now have concealed carry laws going the other way in many states, uh, laws that were adapted because of the fear of violent crime, which was a scourge between the late 1960s and the late 1980s, undeniably. It's still with us today, of course, but it's dramatically down. The NRA is still, though, scaring people to death with the idea that it's so bad out there that you must have a firearm with you to protect yourself because the police aren't always around. When people like me point out that violent crime is way down, the NRA says that's because criminals don't know which members of the general public might be packing heat, so they lay off assaults. No scientifically accurate study has been done to show convincingly uh, cause and effect, carrying guns, lower crime rates. There are people who argue that, but I, I haven't seen a, a really good scientific study that proves it. I think somebody ought to do one, seriously. On the other side, uh, people like Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York City, where I live, uh, say that strict gun control laws uh, <clears throat> that keep people like me from buying and owning guns are the reason for the decline in gun violence in New York City in recent years. And I, I just don't understand that. I keep pointing out that the people who perpetrate gun violence are not the law-abiding people who would apply for uh, a license and, and try to get permission to have a gun in New York City, and mostly are denied because the police say you don't have a good convincing reason to need one. Uh, those aren't the people who are involved in the street shootings that keep happening in New York City, even though there are fewer of those now than there were 20 years ago. But they're mostly uh, people using illegal guns and, and even community guns, guns illegally owned, guns that are stashed somewhere uh, where anybody who knows where they are can get them and use them illegally. Keeping guns out of the hands of people who should not have access to them 
who everybody agrees should not have access to him that's should be the aim of all gun control laws not keeping guns out of the hands of as many law abiding people as possible there are plenty of loopholes in existing legislation as mayor bloomberg keeps saying that i think should be tightened up and first of all first of them i would suggest is the one that exempts as as many as forty percent of all gun purchases from the requirement to to for the buyers names to be cleared by the fbi's NICS system, the so-called gun show loophole that exempts private sales, not just at gun shows, but all private sales of, uh, of firearms. Anybody who buys a gun privately from a private owner doesn't have to go through the background check, and that really ought to be an urgent priority, uh, closing that loophole. It's one of the ways that uh, so many people who use guns criminally in the streets of New York, Chicago, and other big cities manage to get hold of guns. Another way is straw purchasing, which ought to be severely punishable and rigorously prosecuted. It hasn't been. <clears throat> Most gun violence in big cities is committed with handguns, not rifles. And whatever new gun control measures are proposed or discussed after Newtown should concentrate mainly, I think, on what can be done to make possession and carrying of so many handguns safer, not just concentrate on assault so-called assault rifles. <clears throat> they do, assault rifles, figure disproportionately in mass shootings like Newtown and in confrontations with law enforcement. <clears throat> uh, past federal gun control laws, federal ones, have come about with difficulty, and any federal laws that come out of Newtown will also, I think, ha have a difficult time uh, before they're past, uh, and they, in the past it came after a public revulsion over violence reached a peak. In 1968, uh, we, we got a uh, law, the gun control law, after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and uh, Robert Kennedy, for example. And the question now is, is Newtown 2012 a moment like 1968? Well, Senator Feinstein has said she's going to introduce a bill in the Senate to reestate the assault weapons ban that lapsed after 10 years in 2004. And it appears that her bill will propose tightening, tightening it up uh, from what it was then to make it impossible to sell rifles with pistol grips or collapsible stocks or rifles and handguns with large capacity magazines that hold more than 10 bullets. Anyone who has one of these already would have to register it with the, the federal government under the National Firearms Act. That's the 1934 law that made fully automatic machine guns and sawed off shotguns not impossible, but very difficult and expensive to buy and own. <clears throat> and it was later amended to also require fingerprinting and photographs of the owners and registry with the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Well, that 1934 law, when it was passed, was reasonably popular. It was aimed at the syndicate, organized crime, who were spraying bullets around the country at a prolific rate during Prohibition as they sold illegal booze to a population made thirsty by the misguided experiment of Prohibition. You can today technically still own a Tommy gun if you comply with all these restrictions, but few people go to the trouble. 
And you haven't heard the NRA complaining, at least not loudly, about why we can't just go out and buy fully automatic machine guns if we want to. Well, no machine guns were used in Newtown, no machine guns in the Aurora movie theater last summer, not in Tucson when Gabrielle Giffords was shot, not, not in Virginia Tech where 32 people were killed by the shooter who killed himself. But semi-automatic rifles or handguns with magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds were involved in all of them. The 2008 Supreme Court decision in the District of Columbia versus Heller case found, as you've heard, that the right protected by the Second Amendment was an individual right. It concluded that the District of Columbia's ban on handguns in the home violated the, the right because handguns were the weapon most commonly used for self-defense, and self-defense was the most important purpose protected by the right. I don't agree that the Second Amendment was primarily about or written for con uh, concern about self-defense. <clears throat> the wording in Heller was that the amendment, quote, surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Well, I don't see it that way. I think the amendment recognized or acknowledged a pre-existing individual right to use arms for those and other purposes. It did not, quote, confer an individual right to keep and bear arms, as the Heller opinion, I think, wrongly states. Uh, concern about individual self-defense did not figure to any meaningful extent in the debates about the amendment at the time it was proposed and adopted at the end of the 18th century. Uh, gun rights enthusiasts often quote the minority uh, in Pennsylvania that explained why it dissented from ratification of the amendment because it didn't mention self-defense or hunting. But they forget this was a minority view after all. Same with earlier objections uh, <clears throat> to the language in that state's guarantee of the right to keep and bear arms for the common defense. Uh, people in two towns there, Northampton and Williamsburg, wanted uh, the language including the word self-defense as well as common defense. <clears throat> but it was only those two towns. Everywhere else, the, 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 the wording as uh, common defense uh, sailed through, and the state constitution was approved with that wording. This was before uh, the uh, Second Amendment, obviously. <clears throat> the Second Amendment's purpose was a political one to reassure the people who feared that the new federal government that was being established by the Constitution was, would be too powerful, that it could run wild, that it could become uh, despotic or tyrannical was the word, and, and trample the rights of the states. In particular, that a standing federal army, if one should be established, could run amok under a power-mad general or president and suppress American liberties. So the intent of the amendment was to uh, reassure people who were going to decide <clears throat> on uh, the Constitution that there would be protection for the right of the states, the ability of the states to maintain the state militias. The militias would be the deterrent both to any attempt to set up a standing federal army and to any despotic ambitions federal authorities might have. 
The language is often criticized for being antiquated, but to me it's perfectly clear. Had the founders meant to create a right to keep and bear arms, they would have said a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the people shall have the right to keep and bear arms. But they already had that right in common law. It was not the right only of people who were in the militia, as I've said. And that it should not be infringed has never meant that it could not be subject to regulation. But I can imagine that if Congress passed and the president signed a law banning semi-automatic assault rifles and pistols and magazines altogether, the Supreme Court would soon be finding itself asked to rule that the law was unconstitutional, just like the district's ban on handguns or Chicago's in the McDonald case. I can see this argument coming when I read in the New York Times that Stephen Halbrook has done the home, homework and found that there are 3.3 to 3.5 million AR-15s that had been made in the United States uh, from 1986 through mid-2012 and had not been exported. In other words, they were here already in private hands or available for purchase. And, I, and that would be enough, I, I would imagine, he thinks, for a court to find that such weapons were in common use and would fall into the same uh, trap that uh, the DC ban on handguns had. So to wind up here for a moment, what, what can we do to prevent the next new thing, or at least make another one less likely? And I would suggest strengthening regulation of semi-automatic pistols and handguns, but not banning them. If we ha have to ban something, then maybe ban ridiculously high-capacity magazines, except at shooting ranges. There's no earthly reason why any civilian needs to own a magazine capable of holding 100 rounds, as James Holmes, the shooter in Aurora, had for his AR-15. It jammed, though. They advertise uh, those 100-round magazines and gun magazines as, and I'm going to quote this, just the ticket should things really heat up and the lead needs to fly. Of course, this means less time spent reloading and more time for shooting as fast as you can pull the trigger. Okay, ban sales of those maybe. Make it mandatory to register the ones that are out there or say that they can only uh, exist in, at shooting ranges and allow people to turn them in. That might have a chance of getting passed, but I doubt if Senator Feinstein's bill, as it's apparently going to come out. Should we be allowed to handle them on national TV? <laughs> yeah, right, could you do that? <clears throat> I doubt if her, her bill will get a majority in the House of Representatives to support a background check for all existing owners of assault weapons or prevent them or their heirs from selling or on passing those weapons. But private sales of guns should not be exempt from the requirement that applies to sales by federally licensed dealers for the background check. <clears throat> And the categories of people not eligible to buy uh, include minors, people with criminal records, addiction to drugs, uh, or adjudications of mental illness. These are people I think we should all be able to agree should not have access to deadly weapons. But those criteria and the definitions need careful reconsideration, and in some cases, maybe refinement. Too often, also, states don't turn over the mental health records to the federal background check system. After the dismantling of our mental hospital system, which, which had its own horrors, woefully little has been done to replace it with anything that uh, makes it uh, 
possible for people to find uh, treatment for and, uh, and uh, medicine or expertise to deal with mental illness, with the result that many dangerously ill people go without treatment and, and then are not stopped by the background check or wouldn't be from buying weapons. Would the NRA like any of these things? I think after Wayne LaPierre's press conference, it's clear that uh, they, they will resist practically everything, uh, maintaining that the only way to stop bad people with guns is to put good people with guns on site to prevent them from wreaking havoc. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, is it possible for enough members of Congress to be persuaded that doing reasonable things that could be devised in consultation with gun owner organizations or gun, responsible gun owners would save more lives than doing nothing would? I think maybe. If not the members of this 113th Congress, then who? And if not now, after Newtown, when? The important thing is to start the conversation about what we can agree on rather than harp on what we disagree about. <clears throat> Even Wayne LaPierre's press conference, was, which was heavily criticized from the other side, uh, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association both joined this criticism, but they also said long-term and sustainable school safety also requires a commitment to preventive measures. We must continue to do more to prevent bullying in our schools, and we must dramatically expand our investment in mental health services, which has been cut uh, drastically. I hope, I have reasonable hope that the way the Biden Commission is going at things uh, and the reasonable sounding declarations by Democrats in the House give us a chance of coming up with some thoughtful, considered ways we might uh, attack our very real gun violence problem with. I certainly hope so. I wrote my book in an attempt to encourage that kind of dialogue and despite its terrible timeliness, uh, I think there's reasonable hope that it might happen. Thank you. Well, the reasonable tone uh, and, and thoughtfulness that you heard in Craig's presentation is certainly uh, uh, evocative of his book, which is uh, uh, measured and tempered, and I can certainly comment on certain things, but I'll leave that uh, to our panelists. I will make the lawyer's point that, uh, as Craig said, definitions uh, are, are everything. I mean, the devil is in the details. Um, uh, what is a high-capacity magazine? We can all say that 100 might be uh, grotesque, uh, but is there a difference one way or the other, uh, or should we leave it to a legislature to decide between 10 and 20 and 30? Uh, an assault uh, rifle. It sounds scary. It might look like an Uzi. Uh, but it might be no different than a hunting rifle with an extended stock and a place to mount a bayonet if you wanted to. So how you define these things, and different people are often talking about different things by using the shorthand terminology. So I would encourage you as, um, as the Biden Commission releases its report and we continue this debate to really dig into the details to know what people are talking about. And Alan might perhaps comment on um, which proposals he thinks uh, uh, are reasonable or what, what's, what's needed. Uh, Alan Gura is a constitutional attorney in Washington here. Uh, before founding his law firm of Gura and Pizeski, he began his career as a law clerk to federal judge Terrence Boyle in North Carolina. 
Then, as a deputy attorney general for the state of California, uh, Gura defended the state and its employees from all manner of lawsuits in state and federal courts, I can only imagine. Uh, next, upon returning to America, he entered private practice at the Washington office of Sidley and Austin. In 2000, he left the firm for a year to serve as counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Criminal Justice Oversight. In 2009, he was named one of Washington's top 40 lawyers under 40 and a champion of justice by the Legal Times. He graduated from Georgetown University Law Center in Cornell. Most famously, Allen argued and won the Heller and McDonald cases at the Supreme Court. More infamously, he co-authored with me and Josh Blackman an article on McDonald in the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, also, I should note in the interest of full disclosure that Allen is my semi-regular tennis partner. Uh, Craig, I'd invite you to join our matches, but with your background, I'm sure you spent time undercover on the pro tour or something, and that, <laughs> that wouldn't work. Allen. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, Craig Whitney has written an important and thoughtful book that is well worth everyone's time. Uh, I do not endorse every last thing that's in it, uh, but it does something much more important uh, than be perfectly compelling in every respect. Uh, what this book does overall is that it provides a rare and needed perspective and advances our ability to intelligently discuss a difficult and emotional subject that is too often prone to knee-jerk uh, politicization. Uh, I'll start uh, very quickly by criticizing some aspects of the book, which I uh, think could stand improvement. I don't want to dwell on this because I, I, I didn't come here to, um, to criticize the book. I actually think it's, it's quite good. Um, so let me list quickly some of the major points of the book which, with which I would disagree. First of all, I don't think that this book attempts to uh, be a comprehensive historical work. If you are looking for a deep history of the Second Amendment's ratification and the ideas behind it and the history of gun rights in the United States, uh, there are uh, other more focused uh, sources. Um, and in this respect, I, um, I, I disagree with some of the points made in the book. Uh, Mr. Whitney identifies correctly that during the founding era, there were people who were concerned that under the new Constitution, the federal government would have too much power over uh, the militia, and that this was something that needed to be addressed um, by the amendment process. However, uh, that is not to say, and I do not believe that it is correct, that the Second Amendment was intended to, uh, to address that fact or that this concern is what motivated uh, the Second Amendment's ratification. Uh, Mr. Whitney's book correctly identifies, for example, that um, the, the basis for the text of what became the Second Amendment came out of a proposal from Virginia, which submitted a proposed Declaration of Rights. And this language, uh, the 17th paragraph of that declaration then became the Second Amendment. However, Virginia also had another list of what they called other amendments, which were in the same document. And the 11th paragraph of that list of other amendments directly addressed the issue of federal and state um, uh, power uh, over the militia. And that didn't go anywhere. The Senate voted on and rejected also a similar a proposal that would have yielded back power to the states over the militia. And none of this should be surprising. Recall, for example, that uh, the Federalists won. They got the Constitution ratified, and they controlled the first Congress. And so while Madison and his allies were perfectly willing to ratify a Bill of Rights that contained uncontroversial provisions, at the time there was nothing controversial about the free exercise of religion or the right to keep and bear arms uh, or uh, the right to be free from uh, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, 
uh, they were not going to undo the political balance of power between uh, the states and the federal government that had just been uh, created. So I don't think that this was what motivated or what, uh, what, what resulted in the Second Amendment. Uh, the book also states that uh, the right to bear arms was not necessarily a major selling point in the ratification of the 14th Amendment. With this, I would uh, disagree. The history of the 14th Amendment's ratification is replete <coughs> with appeals uh, to the need to secure the right to bear arms in the uh, reconstructed South against uh, Klan violence and other terroristic activity. Uh, McDonald addresses this at some length, and I don't mean for this to become uh, a lecture on uh, the Second Amendment uh, and, its, and its history. But the main point of the book is really what I wanted to address here, and that is that we need a more intelligent discussion. Uh, this book chastises both sides of the gun debate, and I think it does a very good job of that. And I'd like to uh, reflect upon that uh, and bring into, into view some of my own experiences and perspective in this. Um, Anti-gun rights people, uh, for lack of a better term, do need to come to terms with the fact that gun ownership, gun rights are a feature of American culture, uh, and at the same time, the people who are uh, what we would call pro-gun rights uh, probably need to stop acting like the other side's caricatures of, of who they are. Uh, when we were uh, litigating the, the Heller case, one of the things that I found most surprising was the media's fascination with my co-counsel, uh, Robert Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob had made some comments to the effect that even though he was organizing this uh, great gun rights case, he personally had no need for and no use for a firearm. He felt secure in his community. And he was simply uh, litigating this because he believed in the issue as someone who's committed to freedom. And the press just thought this was the strangest thing in the world. Why would you want gun rights if you're not personally invested in, in gun ownership? Now, let's step back uh, and think about this kind of, of question and this kind of fascination. Uh, currently, Ted Olson and David Boyce, two very accomplished uh, attorneys, are uh, doing a lot of great work on behalf of marriage equality, trying to get um, a greater recognition for uh, marriage by gay people. I don't believe that any respectable person would interview Ted Olson or David Boyes and ask them if they are motivated in their property work by desire to marry each other uh, or, um, or, or anything like that. And of course, uh, there are people out there who are gay who uh, support abortion rights. None of them are usually asked, you know, why do you care about abortion rights? Uh, you probably aren't going to be involved in an abortion. Um, but the fact of the matter is that if you're at the newsroom in the Washington Post or other such liberal media uh, establishments, gay marriage is much more acceptable than is gun ownership. Uh, there, it, is, it is probably safe to be out and open uh, as a gay person in some of these media communities, whereas uh, if you go out and declare yourself to be a gun owner, uh, that could probably uh, be taken uh, somewhat more dimly. Uh, that's just where we are in America. We have a large swath of the uh, population that does not personally use or feel the need to use firearms. And so guns have become, uh, for these people, something of an exotic, uh, unusual uh, aspect of life. And of course, if something is exotic or unusual and you feel like you have no need for it personally, then any risk, however minimal uh, uh, in this aspect, is, is just fine. It justifies prohibiting and banning everything. No gun law could be excessive because it doesn't, of course, impact what you yourself personally uh, wish to do. Um, uh, and so we do have a broad um, 
a part of society that uh, may not be familiar with firearms, doesn't feel connected to firearms, yet these people aren't necessarily reflexively hostile uh, to guns. I think many people in the country want uh, to know why it is that their uh, neighbors, so many of their neighbors, uh, feel passionately about this issue. They are thirsting for helpful, calming information about guns and gun owners, and they, they are uh, legitimately interested in understanding this debate. And unfortunately, I, I don't know that the, uh, the NRA, for example, is the leading uh, brand in the gun rights world, uh, did itself uh, any great services in addressing this broad national audience and in giving them uh, any sort of, uh, of, of help uh, in the wake of this uh, horrific uh, tragedy that we saw in Connecticut. Instead, uh, after a seven-day wait, which itself became um, uh, something of, of an issue, uh, the NRA chose to uh, address its hardest core members. They spoke to their mailing list rather than to the broad national audience that was tuned into that press conference. And that was a fantastic and, and stupefying mistake. Uh, NRA not only passed up a chance to build support for its views, I think it did a lot of damage to itself and the cause that it purports to advance. Now, in fairness, let's start by recognizing uh, that many uh, hardcore NRA members and other people who, who support gun rights legitimately feel that they are somewhat besieged. Uh, these people are horrified, as, as everyone else is, by the mass shootings that we're seeing. And on top of that, the media culture says that they're all the next psycho killer, that their hobbies and their passions enable mass murder. Uh, yesterday, uh, just yesterday, we saw Gawker publish a list of New York City gun owners calling them an epithet that I'm not going to repeat here. And predictably, this type of, uh, of drumbeat leads to a wagon circling rally around the leader type reaction, which might feel good to the hardcore, but it's a defeatist approach. Uh, it really does miss those huge swaths of the American population that genuinely need to understand why the NRA is concerned with various gun control proposals and why uh, uh, gun control solutions that, in the absence of any countervailing messaging, appear sensible, uh, are so fiercely resisted by that lobby. Uh, so while NRA members might feel put upon and they've probably thought, many people thought, that Wayne LaPierre uh, surpassed Sir Lawrence Olivier delivering the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. Uh, I'm going to be a tougher critic. Uh, I'm going to judge it by whether it had persuasive value uh, to reachable people and whether it improved or hurt the image of gun ownership. Um, it was not immediately obvious to me as I reflected on that press conference what part of that event was the most damaging and why. Uh, there are no shortage of candidates. Uh, first, there were these antiquated cultural war references to mortal combat and natural-born killers. I would posit that there are more active gamers in the U.S. than active shooters. And for all the tut-tutting Americans recoil instinctively at limiting free expression. There is a huge market for this stuff, but little evidence that it leads to any actual violence. Uh, now, President Bob Dole, remember him? Ran against another violent movie from 1994, came out the same year as Natural Born Killers, Pulp Fiction. And we see how well that turned out for him. Uh, I guess the person we should be feeling badly for here is Quentin Tarantino. Nobody at NRA knows that he has a new movie out in the theaters <laughs> these days. Uh, but, but the message here is simple. Look, if you are a political movement and you are running against the popular culture, you're losing. Uh, there is really no excuse to take on 
the popular culture, that should lead to some, to some, uh, some reflection. This idea of turning schools into uh, uh, security zones, armed camps, I think is, it's unhealthy. Uh, historically, we've had gun rights, and historically, we've not taught our kids that we need to live in this security state where uh, TSA or uh, officer friendly is at the door and, and uh, uh, enforcing um, everything with, uh, with, with the firearm. And th this, I think, uh, strikes a, a discordant note with what we've come to expect of our society. But ultimately, I think the most astonishing aspect of, of the NRA response uh, in the wake of Newtown, it seems to me as though it missed the point of why it is that Americans like guns. Yes, it's true that people do get firearms because they fear crime. That's a real legitimate concern, and it's one that should be respected, and it should not be discounted. Firearms do improve the quality of life for people who feel safer, knowing that they have the ability to defend themselves in neighborhoods where the police are not going to do it. But civilian gun ownership in the United States symbolizes something a little bit different. It symbolizes freedom. Uh, we like to live in a country where individuals are entrusted with a great deal of freedom. Uh, with that comes responsibility. But if you think that every American is potentially the next uh, psycho killer, that's a fairly depressing view of individuals, and it leads to a rather un-American idea of the individual's relationship to the government. Uh, the idea of civilian gun ownership uh, is a positive statement about who we are. Uh, it shows that we're uh, not that we're paranoid or fearful, but that we trust ourselves with freedom and we trust ourselves to be responsible. Uh, and it's not a surprise to me, at least, that the same people who do want to take away your guns are also the same people that want to take away your trans fats and your large sodas and who knows what else. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, we do need to address uh, the, uh, the issues of how it is that we have a society designed for free people knowing that in any country of 300 million uh, individuals, there are going to be some miscreants, there are going to be some criminals, and there are going to be some people with serious mental illness who should not be allowed not just access to firearms, but probably should not be walking around, period. Uh, but that's the struggle that our society is always dealing with. How do we balance freedom with responsibility? How do we regulate with the understanding that the country needs to remain basically respectful of core freedoms. And that's a debate that we do need to have. And uh, I hope that this book helps us have that debate in a more constructive, intelligent fashion. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Alan's comments uh, uh, paralleling the, um, uh, the gay rights and uh, Second Amendment movements reminded me of the um, amicus brief filed by the Pink Pistols in the Heller case, a group of uh, LGBT uh, gun owners who uh, described how their group is particularly vulnerable to violence and so need uh, guns for self-defense. Indeed, one of the original plaintiffs in the Heller case is my colleague Tom Palmer, who once uh, fended off a, um, an armed gang of homophobes by just uh, showing them that he had a, had a handgun. Um, now moving from uh, 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 Alan to Alan Morrison, who is the Lerner Family Associate Dean for Public Interest and Public Service at George Washington University Law School. In that capacity, he's responsible for creating pro bono opportunities for students and assisting students to find ways to fund their legal education so they can pursue careers outside of traditional law firms. 
Uh, in that regard, we invite you all to uh, return here a week from now, January 16th, for a forum on a new book called Failing Law Schools. For most of his career, Morrison worked for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded co with Ralph Nader in 1972. His work invo involved law reform litigation in areas including opening up the legal profession, suing agencies that failed to comply with the law, and enforcing separation of powers, all goals that uh, I think are uncontroversial here at Cato. He argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court, including a victory in the legislative veto case of INS versus Chadha. In addition to his dean duties, Morrison teaches civil procedure and election law at GW and has taught at a host of other top law schools, including the University of Hawaii. Why'd you ever leave that gig? <laughs> um, he graduated from Yale College and Harvard Law School, also served as an officer in the Navy, and was an assistant US attorney in New York. Most relevant here, Morrison was special counsel to the DC uh, Attorney General during the Heller litigation and was set to argue the case before the Supreme Court until Mayor Fenty named a new AG who had other plans. <laughs> Allison, uh, Alan, sorry. When I accepted this invitation, I hadn't quite expected this topic to be on the front page of the newspapers again, but then that's what happens. Uh, I only have three, I want to make three points here today. Uh, first, Craig's book is, is a terrific book and uh, I, I extol it with some comments about it uh, and talk about his effort to find a common ground. I have a few thoughts about how the court should look at laws that get into court uh, dealing with guns, and then a thought or two about what we might be thinking about in terms of new gun laws uh, at, at the current time. So I, I like the book very much. Um, I especially like uh, his uh, quite convincing to me uh, efforts to show that Justice Scalia's use of history uh, was not all that convincing, quite selective, and quite uh, uh, directed at the result of which he was uh, trying to get at. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Justice Stevens looked at exactly the same history, and he came to exactly the opposite conclusions, and both of them, in their opinion, said that the history was clear. Now, there's one thing that seems clear to me is that both of them cannot be right about the history being clear. And I offer this not to suggest that history is irrelevant, but to suggest that there are substantial limits to any attempt to prove by history what the words of the particular provision here, the Second Amendment, mean in a constitutional uh, debate. Uh, there is one area that I just want to comment upon. And that is always seemed to me the, the, most, the strongest point for the uh, proponents of, of gun rights under the Second Amendment. And that is, after all, this was part of the Bill of Rights. Why would it be in the Bill of Rights if it wasn't a right? Uh, why would it not be in the Constitution if it had to do with militia? Since, after all, there were two provisions in the Constitution that dealt directly with the militia. Well, there's an answer. It may not convince you of it, but Madison who was originally opposed to anything changed in the Constitution because of all the difficulty he had getting it ratified, agreed to have a Bill of Rights. But his condition was that it should not change a word, syllable, or letter in the body of the Constitution itself. The Bill of Rights should be a supplement to it so that the Second Amendment was not an amendment to the Constitution itself where it would have fit nicely with the militia clauses, but was added like the other provisions were added on, some of which also would have been rather 
better suited for parts of the Constitution itself. So uh, that's one piece of history that Craig uh, didn't uh, talk about, by no means conclusive. Second, Craig's book has a wonderful quote, and I want you to listen carefully as I uh, excerpt the, the quote, because I'm going to ask you whether you all agree with this or, or not. He suggests, he quotes it, he says, what we need to do is, and I'll tell you who the quote is from in just a second, we need to find ways to cope with illegitimate uses of guns without placing undue restrictions on legitimate uses. Right. Is there anybody in the room who disagrees with that statement? All right. So now let me tell you the context for the statement. That statement was made by Milton Eisenhower, the brother of former President Eisenhower. He made it in 1969 as he headed a commission that recommended that the federal laws restrict handguns in the United States to those for whom there was a reasonable need. All right. That was his proposal. Of course, whether you think that comports with his quotation or not depends upon the meaning of the word undue. And from whose perspective is it undue? And that's the essence of the problem that we have in coming to common ground on it. Uh, all right. Second point I want to talk about a little bit about the Heller case is, although I think Justice Scalia got the wrong answer on the militia versus individual rights, uh, I am much less troubled by that part of the opinion uh, than I am about the rest of it, in which he goes through and decides that some laws are OK and some laws are clearly not OK. Um, and he goes through, but he doesn't tell us the standard by which he judges the laws. How strict an analysis are we going to have? Is this strict scrutiny, something more than reasonable basis, intermediate scrutiny? And then he proceeds to decide uh, for us uh, that uh, some go too far and some uh, don't. And the one among the ones he says are OK uh, are those that forbid felons from having guns. Now, that sounds like something we would think that's OK. But if you are Martha Stewart, who is a felon because she was convicted of income tax evasion, or Scooter Libby, who's a felon because he lied to, to, the, to the grand jury, uh, they are subject to the ban on felons. But nobody asks, why? Are they inherently dangerous because of that? And what standard of review are we going to have in, in judging these laws? Why any heightened review at all? Uh, Supreme Court says it's a fundamental right. The question is, which right is fundamental? The court has said there's a fundamental right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. Is it a fundamental right beyond the home? That's a question which we haven't answered. And uh, judging by the opinion, it's hard to know how it would come out. Surely there's no history of unlimited right of access uh, to guns. There was a common law right to have a gun, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a constitutional right. Common law rights, after all, differ among states, among localities within the states. Why should that be necessarily part of the Second uh, Amendment? Uh, and when we think about reviewing these laws, we ought to ask ourselves, are gun owners part of a suspect categories, like gays and women and uh, blacks and other racial minorities who have been historically discriminated against. 
Surely they do not lack power in the legislative arena. Uh, a high percentage of our voters are gun owners. Uh, the NRA and the industry are surely without, not without voices. Why should we think that the ordinary legislative process doesn't work reasonably well for uh, the regulation of guns like other regulation of dangerous products? Uh, so why should there be different kind of treatment for, for these? Uh, uh, guns are not like the First Amendment. Sticks and stones, break my bones, et cetera, et cetera. We learned in the third or fourth uh, grade. Uh, in the recent uh, Illinois case uh, that Alan uh, mentioned, uh, the dissent, and I commend it to you by Judge Williams, goes through and says, look, we looked at all these studies. Some of them go one way. Some of them go the other way. Why should we, as judges, be judging the studies? Is there any reason to think that the ordinary legislative process has broken down? Or if it broke down before, it won't be corrected over time. Is there any reason we should assign to the judiciary the decision as to how safe we as a community want to be? Is it the same in Chicago as it is in downstate Illinois? Is it the same in Washington, DC, as it in, is in Loudoun County? Why shouldn't we let the local people decide local questions? Not even the same within a state. Uh, why should we have a national rule either saying yes or no uh, to, 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 to everything? Uh, in these situations, there are significant trade-offs between having greater access to guns and the ability to transport them and carry them around uh, against the right of other people to not have people walking around the streets with guns. And why should it not be that the legislature, within very little limitation, be able to make those decisions? All right, so the third point I want to make is what do we do now? Uh, if one looks at the statistics, it ought to be easy to decide what we want to do. Uh, there was a poll taken uh, recently, true, right after Newtown, but it probably wouldn't be different any. In general, do you think that the laws covering firearms should be made more strict, less strict, or keep the same as now? 58% said more strict. Are you for or against the law make it illegal to manufacture, sell, or possess semi-automatic guns? 51% said yes. Please say whether you favor or oppose each of the following. A law which would require background checks before people, including gun dealers, could buy guns at gun shows, 92%. So if you look at those numbers, those are pretty high, high numbers uh, in favor of additional regulation. Uh, the book has, as I have often been tempted to do when I write pieces like this, although not as good and not as long and careful, uh, to make some suggestions at the end. Um, and the temptation is to put out on the table all of the things that could be improved with our gun laws. My fear is that the people who wish to have additional restrictions, whether at the federal level or the state level, need to focus their priorities. And they need to ask the question, which laws are most likely to be effective and reduce death through the use of guns? Uh, the question is not which is li most likely to get passed. The question is which ones are going to get passed are going to be effective because we're probably not going to have many other opportunities for a long time uh, to, to do uh, this. Uh, 
Now, obviously, we would all want to stop the killings in the schools. But how are we going to do that? Is gun registration, if, if that happened enough? After all, the killer's mother had a duly registered gun. It was properly locked up. Uh, he was able to get hold of it and take it to, to the schools. Uh, the fact that he may have been mentally ill, and by the way, he was not adjudicated, and we surely are not going to go out and have everybody in the country be determined whether they're a little odd, which is what people describe people as, and lock them up or take their guns away or make other determinations based on that. Surely that wouldn't be a, a, a good idea. So he had access to a gun that was legally owned. So suppose we outlawed assault weapons. Harsh as it may seem, would it have deterred this person from going to the school if he could only fired six rounds at a time? Uh, I doubt it. And if he had killed 13 people instead of 26, would we have all felt any better at this horrendous uh, matter? So the question is, what are we going to do about this? If we confiscated all of the assault weapons today, and there are three million or so outstanding, what would that actually do? And if you just stop the sales of assault weapons, there's still three million outstanding. Uh, are we going to confiscate them? Uh, assuming we can define what an assault weapon is that doesn't create loopholes, which is apparently what happened uh, uh, under the 96 Act and why it was so, so ineffective. And if we confiscated them all, are we prepared to pay what would probably be a legitimate takings claim on gun owners, uh, assuming we could actually locate them all? Uh, I'm tempted to say about all these things, uh, it would be easy to, to, to pass, uh, but will they be effective? And what are we going to do about suicides? Uh, Craig Whitney's book mentions on page 158 the horrendous statistics on suicides. 17,000 individuals each year commit suicide with handguns. They don't commit them with assault rifles uh, or shotguns. They commit them with handguns. 17,000, that's about half, as I think is about right, the number of deaths every year, not to mention, and of those, probably close to 1,000 are young adults or, or, or children who commit suicide. The assault weapon ban is not going to have anything to do with that. Uh, when I was litigating uh, the, the, the Heller case, there were some quite interesting statistics about how when handguns were banned in the District of Columbia, the suicide rate dropped significantly in the district as compared to what it did in neighboring counties in Prince George's and in Northern Virginia and other places in Maryland. Now, did that prove anything? Well, maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't. Uh, but should we leave that up to the courts or should we leave that up uh, to, the, to the legislatures? The one thing that probably would make a big <coughs> difference is clamping down on the sales through gun shows and the failure to conduct background investigations. Statistics are 40% of those uh, gun sales are, are go uh, un, un, unchecked every year. Uh, wouldn't be a problem with the Constitution in, in, in doing that so far as the federal power is concerned. I saw today the paper that somebody said uh, you, you, we should have an, a, a, a Lopez revisited and have banned guns near the, near the schools as if the, the killer in, in Newtown would have been prevented from going, oh my gosh, I can't go near the school because I have a gun, but I'm going to go in there and shoot people. I mean, that's just completely backwards, uh, assuming that it would be constitutional under, under the Commerce uh, Clause. Uh, so what the federal government can do is quite interesting. Something else that's, occur that's been suggested, and that is new taxes on 
guns, perhaps. How about taxes on ammunition, uh, with perhaps an exemption for firing ranges where there's a good use to use uh, ammunition? Uh, uh, if you're defending yourself, you don't need a whole lot of bullets. And you probably be willing to pay a tax uh, if you think that's likely to save, save your, your, your lives. And the last thing I point out is we have a quite bizarre way of treating felons who are convicted, cannot have their guns, and somehow find it easier to, to recapture their guns and the right to own guns than it is to recapture their right to vote. Thank you very much. Before opening up to questions, I just want to sharpen this discussion by uh, asking Craig to just quickly list, bullet point, uh, the proposals at the end of your book or what you think should be on the table. And we'll, we'll cabin for the moment the, whether this should come from the, at the federal or the, or the state level. I don't want to get into a discussion of federalism here. Well, I won't bullet point them all, but the most important ones, I think, are um, increase the state penalties for gun crimes, like using community guns. You can make that a crime. I think uh, some legislators in New York are going to try to do that. Fill in holes in that NICS uh, uh, instant check system by requiring the states to report promptly and thoroughly the names of drug abusers, criminals, psychologically disturbed people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, and so on. A lot of states don't do that very fast, if at all. Close the gun show loophole, the so-called gun show loophole, and make all purchases of guns subject to that NICS background check. Uh, get Congress off the back of the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. They've been going nuts about the uh, gun running case in Mexico, and you know the, the agency doesn't even have a, a director because Congress won't let it happen. Uh, increase the penalties for straw purchases of weapons, uh, buying weapons for somebody who's on the list and can't buy them himself. Uh, that ought to be uh, uh, have he heavy penalties, and, and the crime ought to be rigorously prosecuted. And, and finally, I, I suggest that the states, not the federal government, uh, should be required to adopt systems of licensing and registration. Not all states have it now for firearms. Quickly, any comments on, on those that you vehemently disagree with, that you think are a good idea? Well, the, uh, I don't believe that registration licensing, that's recommended in the book. I don't think that's going to do any good. Um, background checks should not be problematic. There's always, you know, if, there, if there's good data to be uh, put into the computer systems, then it should be there. I, have, uh, um, I don't think that background checks would be uh, constitutionally suspect inherently if they're done in a way that's uh, not uh, uh, too expensive or, or uh, used as simply a way to deny sales that, that should actually go through. So that's probably not, uh, not something that I think would, would be too troubling to the courts. But uh, Alan Morrison? I don't have additional comments now. OK. Uh, well, as, as I was going through, a, a number of those were part of the, uh, that Colorado consensus that I had mentioned in my uh, introduction. So I, th I think there are a, a lot of room for, um, uh, there is a lot of room for agreement on those. Um, and even the NRA, I think, is um, uh, on board with some of these. Anyway, let's hear from uh, all of you. Please uh, wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and uh, any affiliation right here.
Howard Woldridge, um, co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Uh, one quick point. In Michigan, where I was a detective and police officer, we had a two-year mandatory minimum for anyone committing a crime with a gun versus, say, a knife. If you held up an armed robbery with a knife, there was no mandatory minimum. With the gun, there was. My understanding is that did help bring down the gun usage in, in, in armed felonies. My question is uh, pertaining to Australia being brought up as this uh, concept that if we just let uh, the government confiscate and or buy back the guns, now Australia is a more, a more peaceful place after a big uh, problem they had like 1995. Mr. Morrison, you brought up the idea of confiscating uh, the guns of, of homeowner of, of owners of the say the assault weapons. Uh, I, for professional reasons, attend the NRA convention. I talk to a lot of conservatives and gun owners. It's my sense that if we actually tried to <coughs> confiscate these guns, there would be tens of thousands of dead people out there, <laughs> uh, police officers, soldiers, whoever you try to go into a home, they really will not allow you to take their gun until it's in their dead cold fingers. So in terms of this policy debate, is it really, does, does anybody else have a sense of whether Americans really would start a firefight with the police officers or the government agents who would come to take away their weapons? Is this discussed in terms of policy going forward? I just want to be clear. I did not support the confiscation because I think there's no chance of it getting through. I don't think I agree with you that there'd be tens of thousands of people who would resist it, uh, but there would be surely some people who, who would. Um, and unless we're prepared to confiscate all of the assault weapons and prevent their sales in the future, then it's, it's a gesture uh, to ban uh, assault weapons. It probably will make people feel good, but I don't think it will, it will solve that much in the way of, of the elimination of wrongful violence. Alan, didn't you say that confiscating uh, assault weapons would be ineffective, not just that it wouldn't go through, but because there's, I guess, handguns and other types of weapons out there that just even, even a ban and confiscation of them would not be effective uh, public policy-wise. Did I misunderstand that? Well, it, we would surely eliminate some kinds of mass deaths, uh, whether we would, uh, whether the, the, the shooters who go into schools and attack unarmed children uh, would feel the need to have an assault, not do it because they don't have an assault weapon, but they have, a, have uh, two or three loaded handguns with them, uh, I rather doubt. Uh, but unless we're prepared to confiscate the existing hand, uh, assault weapons, uh, it may be, make people feel good and make it symbolic to, to, to ban uh, assault weapons. Uh, and I might vote for it, but I really wouldn't think that it's going to make much difference in terms of saving lives, which is what I'm really concerned about. Tim. Thanks. Tim Lynch with Cato. A uh, question for Mr. Whitney. Um, I w given your career in journalism, I wanted to ask you about how reporters uh, cover instances of where civilians use guns in self-defense. Uh, for example, there was a shooting incident a few years ago at the Appalachian Law School, and I saw a documentary where <coughs> Well, for those who don't know, the shooting there was quickly put to an end because some of the students ran to their cars, got their gun, and then went over and confronted the shooter and, and so put it to a stop fairly quickly. I saw a documentary where one of the students was saying that he gave dozens and dozens of interviews to reporters about what had happened. And then when he looked at the way in which they were written up, the reporters 
talked about the incident but didn't report that he went and used his own gun to put a stop to the shooting. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about this type of coverage and what if, what, if any are the explanations behind it? Uh, not very competent reporting, I would suggest, in that case. Um, sure, a lot of uh, people in the news media <coughs> are uh, not familiar with guns. When I was at the New York Times, people would come up to me uh, often with pictures of weapons owned that are used by the military today and say, can you help with this? What's this? And I, Because I was the only person in the New York Times newsroom who had served in the military, or almost the only one. Um, that's often the case in newsrooms, and I think it's too bad. Um, but in general, uh, reporters report what they can find out, and, and if in that case and others they, they have deliberately withheld uh, facts that are material to uh, an account of the incident, then they, uh, they didn't do a good job. Uh, it's hard, though, to report uses of guns that don't involve shooting, because they often don't become news at all. Reporters don't learn about them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a different kind of a problem. But I, I, I don't think there's an ideological uh, conspiracy to deliberately withhold or prevent uh, news like that from getting into newspapers. It's just the usual human failings, mistakes. Thank you very much. This has been a really interesting forum so far. My name is Luca Gattoni-Celli. I'm here representing the American Spectator. And uh, Mr. Whitney, great book. I wanted to ask you what you have to say to gun owners and gun enthusiasts, oh, okay. many of them who shoot for sport, um, and who do associate it with what Mr. Gura talked about, freedom. Uh, a lot of them in the coverage of the recent events in Connecticut, have their reaction has been that people just have this profound ignorance of how guns actually work and how you can actually use one. Um, for example, if you use a fully automatic weapon, handheld, it almost is impossible to use even with appropriate training. So how do you respond to those people who use guns, no guns, and feel like a lot of the people in this debate are speaking from ignorance? Uh, I sympathize with them. Uh, I, I often find accounts of uh, AR-15s being described as uh, automatic weapons, assault weapons. Uh, and they're not. They're semi-automatic. And that distinction is, is often hard to get uh, reporters to make. Uh, and again, it's a failing not to. I'm sure there are many more gun owners who, who use their guns for sport or hunting than there are who use them for self-defense. I'm sure that's the case. And, uh, and you know, gun... A shooting is a sport. It's even an Olympic sport. And uh, it's fun. I, I enjoyed doing it in, uh, as part of the research I did for this book when I went with my nephew in uh, Phoenix to a, to a gun range. Um, and that's why I'm sure there are a lot of gun owners for whom the NRA doesn't speak politically. And I hope their voices will be heard in the, in the debates that we should be having now about what to do in the wake of Newtown. Hi, I'm Mark Mayerson. I have no particular organization. Uh, I am a gun owner uh, and believe in, in training. 
what disturbs me in a lot of the current debate is the blinders that are put on insofar as we're not looking at either cross-cultural issues or international comparisons and that we are uh, in assuming there's an American originalist sin just like the three-fifths clause by adopting the Second Amendment. What I mean by that as an example is when we compare the New York versus Chicago murder rates last year, uh, all this praise goes to New York for decreasing the murder rates, yet Chicago has the toughest gun laws in America, and no comment is then made that maybe there are other factors other than this single factor of banning guns that leads to a, quote, successful outcome, close quote, in New York, and an unsuccessful outcome from the same exact public policy tool in Chicago. In Japan, you have a long history of people trying to assassinate with guns their leaders uh, from the mayoral level upwards. Uh, that's not unique to the United States. In China, you've had uh, a number of men attack school children with hammers. Uh, and this was five years ago, there was an epidemic of these things <coughs> where children were hacked to death. Uh, and it has nothing to do with hammers. It has to do with the social milieu and the stresses that are, are being, that they're responding to. So I, I find it very disturbing when we're talking about a public policy reform to not look at other factors, and I think that the NRA actually should be praised for standing up to say, well, there's a multiplicity of factors going on, the culture of violence, the ability to put yourself into a video game. Is, the, is there a question? Uh, yeah. Yes, the, the question is as we go, how does one create public policy dialogue that is not so confined in the Washington type approach of there's this bill, are you for it or not, as opposed to what everybody seems to be interested in doing and attack the problem, whatever the problem is defined to be. Well, we're trying to do that by hosting this forum, but uh, any, any comments on how to advance the debate in a, in a positive direction? Well, I, I agree that, uh, as I said, the, the concentrating on just the guns or the hardware doesn't address the problem of that causes uh, gun violence in our country. Um, <clears throat> and I take some encouragement from reading that the Biden Commission is meeting with all kinds of different groups, not just uh, um, anti-gun or gun control advocates, but uh, also they're inviting in the NRA and other gun owners, and they're talking to the media industry, the people who make the video games and the movies that have so much violence. Uh, they ought to be talking to uh, address all these issues, psychopathological issues, as I say. Incidentally, Chicago has a very good program that clearly hasn't done enough, but it works with uh, youth in troubled neighborhoods who 
where most of the gun violence take place. They use ex-gang mem ex members and, uh, and others like that as role models to try to convince them guns are not the answer to all your problems. Don't, don't try to use a gun every time you come up against an obstacle. Well, this forum is a good way to have a more constructive debate. Uh, books like this uh, contribute to the debate. I think everybody needs to be a little bit more responsible. Uh, the other night, you had a, a national talk show host um, put on a conspiracy theorist who ranted and raved about everything from the alleged conspiracy around 9-11 to um, you know, international bankers and everything else. And this was supposed to be the voice of people who believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, I don't believe that was a responsible thing to do, to put him on the air. Um, and at the same time, uh, yes, the media does have, I think, a greater, uh, the media could do a much better job in reporting the positive uses to which uh, firearms are placed. I think uh, Tim Lynch's question was, was excellent. Uh, there is significant underreporting of the defensive uses of uh, firearms. Uh, and there is, um, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to look at sort of the mainstream national media's coverage of this issue and uh, think that there's any sort of semblance of fairness or balance in the discussion. And at the same time, as I've uh, criticized, um, while uh, Mr. LaPierre's press conference wasn't quite Alex Jones, um, perhaps that shouldn't be the benchmark for it. So uh, people can always uh, look to be more responsible and, and perhaps uh, more, uh, uh, more measured in how they address the topic. I suppose I'd answer the question in two separate ways. First, uh, should this be a question that's decided by the judiciary interpreting the Second Amendment with its all or nothing aspect to it? That's question number one. I think the answer is no. I think that our legislatures are more likely to bring in the variety of different circumstances and to create the balanced viewpoint and have an opportunity to decide these. Uh, unfortunately, nobody's going to produce a study that's going to be clear enough as to what fact, how much this factor has uh, bears on it and how much others. I'm sure people would ha differ with you as to whether the situations in New York and Chicago are comparable and what the differences are. That's the kind of thing that courts are not very well equipped to raise. Second, uh, to the extent that you focused on the Washington solution, I want to be clear that while there are some things that only Washington can do, which is to the extent that you require some sort of background check uh, and, and registration of gun sales, uh, only the federal government can do that. There's no way that a state government can do that. But that said, just because the federal government thinks a vote of Congress would show that majority favors this, doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense to impose upon everybody around the country the same kind of rules, either pro-gun or anti-gun. And so I would suggest that we put these in the legislatures, we put them in the federal legislature to the extent that only the federal government can do things, and we leave to state and local legislatures the authority to create these inevitable trade-offs that they're gonna have to do, and to try to figure out which studies are meaningful and which, which solutions work and which ones are cosmetic uh, and, and which ones are positively harmful. It is absolutely the job of judges to strike down every stupid unconstitutional thing that the government can come up with to violate people's rights. The fact is that the reason we have a constitution with judicial review is that the framers assumed that rights would be violated. The constitution and the judges who enforce it are a check on the political uh, system. 
this is something of an anti-democratic process, but that's what we've chosen to live under. Uh, the fact is that we have certain rights that are enshrined in the Constitution, and whether it's the right of free speech or the right to be um, free of unreasonable searches and seizures or uh, the right to, uh, to, to keep and bear arms, uh, those are certain concepts that ultimately have to be enforced by judges because all the smart folks in the legislature at the end of the day are going to take away your rights, and it's not just firearms, it's other things as well. And perhaps we, we can create a political system where we leave everything up to the legislature. That is a political system that is free of the concept of rights uh, because ultimately 51% uh, of, of the political process will tell you what to do and what not to do, and, uh, and that's the end of the story. But if we actually value the idea that there are some things that the political process cannot do to us, then we're going to have to uh, understand and celebrate the idea that there are going to be rights, not just legislative pronouncements, and those rights have to be enforced by some uh, judicial entity that's not uh, inherently political. Alan Morrison, do you want to respond to that? No, I guess, the, yes, I guess I uh, the, the question is, is <laughs> I, I was, the no, it's to, to no, 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 no. Uh, the, the question is, what are these rights, and do we give any deference at all to the legislature? No. And I take it to you, that's your view. <laughs> all right, so that, that's your view. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think that the Second Amendment is closer to economic rights than it is to the First Amendment. You disagree, but I think we ought to understand that, normally speaking, absent some suspect category or a fundamental right, and then we're back to the same question as to what, ex what is the extent of the fundamental right. Well, you would think that one written in the Bill of Rights explicitly is a fundamental right, if anything. Well, but the question is, what does it mean to say that, that, it's, that it's, it's the right to bear arms? That's not self-defining. You just if, don't like the answer. Well, you, no. like what it means. Maybe so. I mean, that's your conclusion. Uh, does it mean that you have a that everybody has a right to bear arms anytime, any place, with no conditions other than the, the few things that Scalia said are off bounds for reasons that only he knows why they're off bounds? Do you think it's a constitutional right, absolute right for individuals to, who are not convicted felons to carry a gun any place in the United States, openly or closed, without the, the legislature can't do anything about that? As much as people have the right to. Uh, answer yes or no. No, no of course not. Because, Why but, not? But, well, for it's the a same, right. It's because a fundamental right to bear arms. Well, we you have, have the right to free speech, but you don't have the right to play your uh, you know, music at 5 in the morning uh, so at 300 decibels. So tell me what time, decibels. place, and matters you can't have. Well, that's why we have intermediate. We do have time, no, place, and matters. No, that's why we have legislatures. No, no. How about we schools? Legislature oh. outlaws guns in schools. Is that okay or not? There's think, a lot of dangerous people you know, in schools. They have guns. People come into school. If that, if, if the teachers had guns in Newtown, well, they would have shot those see, guys. This is why we have. Actually, this is and exactly. I don't why. agree with that answer, but I think that's up to the legislature. Normally, you. Normally, the when there's a fundamental right, the government to pass a law uh, to keep a law in place that violates that right have to has to prove that they have a compelling interest uh, and that they are. Uh, 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 pursuing uh, pursuing their regulation in the most narrowly tailored. Manner, just like uh, uh, Alan Gura was saying, the, the First Amendment isn't absolute, the Fourth Amendment isn't absolute. None of our rights are absolute. That's a straw man argument. The, uh, the point is, if, if this is a right that we take seriously, the right to keep and bear arms, and actually the, the bear arms part is headed to the Supreme Court. I don't know, Adam, uh, Alan Gura is too modest. He just filed a cert petition that raises this issue. I mentioned in my introduction the, the Posner um, uh, ruling last month uh, in the Seventh Circuit 
that created a split among uh, nationally. Uh, there are courts ruling both ways as to whether you have a right to, uh, to, to, to bear arms outside the home, broader than what uh, Heller explicitly uh, said. Um, I think that's the next battleground, and, and we'll see what happens with that. But you know, the, anyway, I'll, I'll leave my comments there. <laughs> Roger Pilan, Cato Institute. Just to pick up on this last exchange, seems to me the nub of the matter is that the Second Amendment creates a presumption that you have a right to a gun. The reason that goes to the court is because the court wants to see if the presumption can be overridden by some standard of evidence. That's not something that is overridden by someone coming into court saying, we decided 51 to 49 that you don't have such and such a right. It's under, it's overcome by evidence presented to a court. That's why the judges decided, not the legislature. It starts well, with a presumption. Well, that of course, you may be right that it creates a presumption. The, so far, the court has said you have a presumption of a right to have a, arms in your own home. It has not said you have a presumption of everyplace else. That's the next question that comes before it. That's the definition of the right. Uh, and you may be correct in that the court will agree with that position. Uh, uh, but in deciding that, and in deciding whether, assuming that there is a right, whether we should give the judgment of the legislature, who was, after all, elected by all the people, subject, as we all know, to the influence of gun owners, gun manufacturers, and the NRA, any deference whatsoever, uh, I take it my friend here, Alan, would say no. Uh, and you would say right. no. Right. And you would agree with that. That's fine. I think that's the question and not the answer. Well, if I may just comment, if you have any sort of system where judges are showing deference to the legislature, uh, you're really losing your system of checks and balances. The Constitution presumes that every branch of government is co-equal and has to take its responsibilities seriously. And if we start every constitutional case with a thumb on the scale on the side of the government uh, and courts get into the habit of simply approving as opposed to reviewing uh, um, legislative pronouncements, then we've really lost our rights and we've really lost any check on the political process. So I take this it you think substantive due process is, is, is alive and well? Uh, it would should be. Would you apply be. that to abortion rules? Well, it would, be, it, well it would be better under the privileges or immunities clause, but... Uh, yes. Well, I, well the, the idea that there should be any deference to the legislature shown by judges is completely toxic to the idea that we have any rights or any limits on the powers on the positive powers of, of the political branches. Yep. The judges need to be, the Constitution made them independent. They don't sit for election, right? They serve for life as long as they're there in good behavior. Their pay cannot be cut. And if we look at the, uh, at the debates, the original debates on the Constitution, everyone said, well, it's a terrible idea to have judges review Democratic pronouncements, except it's the best one we've got. Because otherwise, who in the world is going to enforce? Look, Congress listens to its mail. It listens to its phone calls, to the people who visit the offices. The very last thing that ever happens in a congressional office where they want to vote on something controversial is, you know, the senator or the member of Congress says, is this constitutional? You know, let me get an analysis of whether or not I'm being, you know, my constituents really want this. 
But I, you know, and, and if I don't vote for this, I'm going to get hurt the next time there's an election. But maybe it's unconstitutional. Come on, that's silly. I mean, that, that's not what they look at. And oftentimes, they're actually very flagrant about saying, let's just punt this to the court. We'll pass what we want. And if the court wants to stop us, then let them try and do it. And, it, you know, uh, that's the system we've got. And the court should not defer to the legislature on anything, really. Anything. Okay. Nothing. Glad to hear that on that's, anything. All right. Thank All you. right. On, on that note, we're going to have to cut this off and continue the uh, conversation uh, at lunch, which will be on the second floor. You take the spiral staircase up to the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. So let's give a big round of applause to our panel and our author. Thank you.